0: Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 121, and in today's episode, I'm going to be looking at something called the Minimal Facts Argument for Jesus' Resurrection, made popular by doctors Gary Habermas and Michael Licona in their over 700-page book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review on my Apple Podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, I have a new book out called Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom. You can get it in Kindle format, audiobook, or paperback book on Amazon. And if it has been a blessing to you as well, please consider leaving a rating and review there. Also, if you'd like to support this ministry, please consider becoming one of my patrons at patreon.com slash philsbaker. There are two videos I upload every month, one being a breakdown of an early Christian, early Christian document, and the second being a tutorial of how to play one of my original songs. So again, go check that out at patreon.com slash philsbaker. Finally, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency. And please go check out our YouTube channel, Omega Frequency Live, to get access to all the content that BDK and I put out every week. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 121. Mm Arguably, the two most prominent current authorities on the resurrection of Jesus are Gary Habermas and Michael Lee Kona, who have co written an over 700 page book on this subject called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. If you are a skeptic but are intellectually honest and earnestly desire to know the truth, read this book, which I have a link to in the show notes. It's long but it's easily digestible, and in it, they employ a strategy known as the minimal facts approach. Habermas and Lee Kona write, quote, while we hold that the Bible is trustworthy and inspired, we cannot expect the skeptical non-believer with whom we are dialoguing to embrace this view. So, in order to avoid a discussion that may divert us off of our most important topic— we would like to suggest that we adopt a minimal facts approach. This approach considers only those data that are so strongly attested historically that they are granted by nearly every scholar who studies the subject, even the rather skeptical ones. And one of the strengths of this approach is that it avoids debate over the inspiration of the Bible, unquote. As you read these five minimal facts about Jesus' resurrection, remember that virtually all non-Christian scholars attest to their veracity. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. Number three, Paul, the persecutor of the church, was suddenly changed. Number four, James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, was suddenly changed. And number five, the empty tomb. So we're going to begin by looking at the first two kind of together. First, that Jesus died by crucifixion, and second, that Jesus' followers believed that he was resurrected. All of the gospel writers attest to the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion. Mark writes in chapter 15, five different times that Jesus died by crucifixion. And Luke in chapter 24 displays the resurrected Jesus talking to his disciples and telling them to look at both his hands and his feet because those were nailed in crucifixion. The second point is that Jesus' followers believed he was resurrected. The author of the book of Acts, Luke, wastes no time discussing the belief that the apostles had that Jesus rose from the dead in chapter 1 in verse 3, where he says that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering to the apostles by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Also, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 8 writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Dr. Bart Ehrman of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is one of the most critical New Testament scholars living. And though Ehrman does not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, he does write in his book, The Historical Jesus, Lecture Transcript and Course Guidebook, Volume 2, quote, One of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate, unquote. Late first and early second century historian Tacitus Writes about Emperor Nero quote, No humane endeavor, no princely generosity, no efforts to placate the gods were able to dispel the scandalous suspicion that the burning of the city was the result of an order. To silence this rumor, Nero pushed the Christians forward as culprits and punished them with ingenious cruelty, as they were generally hated for their infamous deeds. The one from whom this name originated, Christ, had been executed during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procreator Pontius Pilate. For a time, this pernicious superstition was suppressed, but it broke out again, not only in Judea, where this evil thing began, but even in the city itself, where everything atrocious and shameful from all quarters flows together and finds adherence." So this work from Tacitus is incredibly important because it shows how Jesus was called the Messiah or Christ, that he was executed during the reign of Tiberius Caesar by Pontius Pilate and that his movement began in Judea. Powerful stuff from an opponent of the Christians, Roman historian Tacitus. Lucian of Samosata was a second-century Greek satirist who was highly critical of Christianity, and yet he wrote in his work, The Death of Peregrinus, quote, "...the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account." You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. So just incredible uh, data here from an antagonist of Christianity, Dr. Titus Kennedy, in his amazing book, Unearthing the Bible writes about the earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion of Jesus, which is called the Alexamenos Graffito, which dates to either the end of the first century or all the way to the very beginning of the third. So, sometime in that period, a person in Rome scratched into the plaster of a wall on the pedagogium. On the Palatine Hill, a drawing which shows Jesus on the cross with the head of a donkey, while a man standing on the ground looks up to the crucifixion victim with a raised arm. Below it, an accompanying Greek inscription reads, "Alexamenos worships his god." The drawing and text exhibits. Through mockery, how the Roman pagan mindset viewed the crucifixion of Jesus as foolishness as that worldview could not imagine how a God could be subjected to a pitiful and dishonorable execution reserved for criminals who were not Roman citizens. Another non-Christian account of the historical veracity of the crucifixion of Jesus and that Christians worshipped him as God. And why? Because they believed he rose from the dead. Now, let's move on to the third minimal fact, that Paul the persecutor was suddenly changed. You can read his conversion story three times in the book of Acts, in chapters 9, 22, and 26, but I want to read you his personal account from Galatians 1. 1 So starting in verse 1 we read Paul an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead moving to verse 13 For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the region of Syria and Sicilia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only that they kept hearing he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. Not only is it important to note that Paul is writing this, but he also basically takes an oath before God that he is testifying truthfully of this account. Also, if you were listening closely, you heard Paul Refer to James, the brother of Jesus, being in Jerusalem. James is the fourth minimal fact that we need to take into account. The fact that James would flip to become a follower of Jesus is so important. When we're first introduced to James in the scripture, we see in John chapter 2, Jesus has just performed his first miracle at the wedding in Cana, turning water into wine. And John writes in verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So here we see James going along with this. All right. Okay. This is kind of different. This is not the same brother I grew up with, it seems. Uh, Didn't see him doing miracles back then, but I I can vibe with this. Okay. However, the story takes a turn. As Jesus continues in his ministry, looking at Mark chapter three, we see that Jesus has begun to call apostles to himself. He's also been healing people on the synagogue, and in Mark chapter two, he's equating himself with God. And so in Mark three, verse 20, Jesus comes home. And a crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Now, who are his own people that came to take custody of him? And by the way, that word take custody is kind of like putting someone in handcuffs. Well, verse 31 says, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. And mother so at this point in the gospel message it is very interesting to see that his both his mother Mary and his brothers including James as being the second oldest have decided Jesus is out of his mind and they are actually trying to stop him from doing what God has called him to do next in John chapter 7 Jesus has just fed the 5000 he has walked on water the people have tried to make him king by force he has just said things like unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no life in yourselves uh, he's saying this and many disciples as we see in John chapter 6 verse 66 many disciples have left and have stopped following Jesus Now, after all these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, that's also tabernacles, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil." So here in John 7, we actually see Jesus' brothers, obviously including James, trying to provoke Jesus to go into Jerusalem where people are trying to kill him. They are likely so embarrassed of him that they are now setting him up to be murdered. And yet, Jesus' resurrection changed everything for James you remember in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says that Jesus appeared personally to James after his resurrection and Luke records in Acts chapter 1 verse 14 these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers James writes one epistle that is in the New Testament and in James chapter 1 verse 1 James writes James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ here in one of the earliest books of the New Testament James the brother of Jesus calls Jesus Lord and Messiah First century historian Josephus writes highly about James, the brother of Jesus, that the Jews who were not followers followers of Jesus still held James in high regard. And Josephus even blames the destruction of the temple on the murder of James at the hands of the Jewish leaders. Finally, in 2002, what is known as the James Ossuary was discovered. Ossuaries were common in the first century and they were carved stone boxes which the bones of deceased relatives in which the bones of deceased relatives were commonly stored and placed in a tomb. Well, like I said, an ossuary was revealed to the world in 2002, which was found in Jerusalem where James died, that had an inscription on the side of it in Aramaic, the language that Jesus and his brothers spoke, saying, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. And besides James the Apostle, there is no other known James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, from that period. Also, a statistical name analysis determined it was probable that only one person would have been described as James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, in the first century AD Jerusalem. And of all the known inscribed ossuaries, Only one other mentions a brother, meaning that brother was very significant. All right, let's come to our fifth minimal fact, the empty tomb. Starting in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, we read, Now, after the Sabbath, it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and take my words to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as has been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So it's important to note from this account in Matthew that even a couple decades after Jesus' crucifixion, word is still going around the Roman Empire that Jesus was crucified and that his tomb was empty. Second century apologist Justin Martyr writes in his work, Dialogue with Trypho the Jew in chapter 108. And though all the men of your nation knew the incidents in the life of Jonah, and though Christ said amongst you that he would give the sign of Jonah, exhorting you to repent of your wicked deeds, at least after he rose again from the dead, and to mourn before God, as did the Ninevites, in order that your nation and city might not be taken and destroyed, as they have been destroyed, yet you not only have not repented, After you learned that he rose from the dead, but as I said before, you have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy has sprung up from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom was crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross. So this is in around 160 AD, and here, uh, Justin is saying that what Matthew recorded about this rumor from the Jews, uh, spread that Jesus' disciples stole the body, is still going on. This is nearly a hundred years after Matthew wrote his gospel, and yet that same rumor from the Jews has persisted that Jesus' disciples stole his body from the tomb. And are going around the world lying, saying that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, are actually dying, laying down their life joyfully while not taking up arms to try to prove this to the world. It doesn't really make sense, does it? That if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, that his disciples would willingly lay down their lives. But let's continue and look at something called the Nazareth Inscription. Again, in his incredible work Unearthing the Bible, Dr. Titus Kennedy writes of the Nazareth inscription, in 1878, a stone slab with a 22-line Greek inscription that was an edict of Caesar surfaced in Nazareth and was purchased by a French antiquities collector. Because the stone was acquired through the antiquities market, its exact place of discovery is unknown, but it has been affirmed as authentic and seems to have been issued in Judea province or Galilee. The language and historical context of the beginning of the reign of Claudius indicates that the edict was made about AD 41 when Claudius became emperor of Rome. The text specifically prohibits the moving or stealing of bodies from stone-sealed tombs with wicked intent. It compares it to an offense against the gods and imposes an extreme new penalty of death for the crime it states that if anyone has extracted those who have been buried or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places or has moved sepulcher sealing stones, you are absolutely not to allow anyone to move those who have been entombed. Consequently, the edict describes the same type of tomb, a stone-carved tomb sealed with a large stone, which Jesus was buried in according to Judean custom, while Romans were typically cremated. According to Matthew, the false story that the disciples stole the body of Jesus was spread by the religious leaders of Judaism via the Roman soldiers and And this rumor apparently reached the ears of the emperor. Therefore, the edict recorded on the Nazareth inscription was probably a reaction to stories about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in particular, the version that the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb were paid to say that the disciples of Jesus stole his body while they were asleep. By the time of Claudius, knowledge of Christianity and the story of the resurrection of Jesus had spread throughout many areas of the Roman Empire, beginning to cause problems in the realm of religion, politics, and society, and Claudius seems to have attempted to prevent any future claims of the resurrection of the dead. All right, so those are an explanation of the five minimal facts. Surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. And just to conclude it, Habermas and Likota summarize these five minimal facts in their appendix quote, number one, Jesus' disciples sincerely believed he rose from the dead and appeared to them. Two, external evidence. And events support the authenticity of their belief in his resurrection, the conversion of the church persecutor Paul, the conversion of the skeptic James, and the empty tomb. And since three, no plausible opposing theories exist that can account for the historical facts, Jesus' resurrection is the only plausible explanation. You know, life is filled with hurts. Life is filled with challenges and struggle and heartbreak and disappointment and trials that can be unimaginable. And these struggles and hardships can sometimes wear on our faith. It is important then that we have a strong foundation that we have built our life upon, that we have a sure anchor for our soul and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's so many things that we will go through that don't make sense, but if Jesus rose from the dead, it is okay. It will be okay because he said he would rise from the dead and we can be more sure of the resurrection of Jesus than basically any other event in antiquity. So, when you are assailed by doubt and hardships and trials, come back to these simple truths that point to God's love for you, extreme love for you, and extreme power to redeem whatever situation you are in. Because Jesus was crucified, you know God loves you and because he rose from the dead, you can know that he will keep all of his promises to you, even to cause all that you go go through to work together for your good. So guys, please hang in there. Keep focused on the facts. God bless you. (laughs)
1: Just trust me you'll see oh, 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 oh,
2: oh, 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 Hold on to believe He came to me and told me my seed would be the way they Then he took me outside and said, look at the sky Just like the stars, the suns will fill up the earth
1: Just trust me, you'll see
2: So go to that mountain, what should be there? You and your son, who was a miracle child, give him back to his maker. Son, don't be scared. Our God, who loves the world, is gonna provide.
1: Trust me, you'll see.
2: Hold on to believe you are the son of the promise of God, and on his word, we are standing Love doesn't quit at a twist, and the if you lay your cross, there's a resurrection